This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, here are the words new Australians need to repeat when they reach the end of the long and torturous bureaucratic process to become an Australian citizen. I affirm my loyalty to Australia and its people whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect and whose laws I uphold and obey. But who needs that old-fashioned stuff in these days of globalism and cultural relativism? Don't pledge allegiance to us, our laws and the people. Threaten to blow us up instead. Zira Duman was an Australian citizen with Turkish parents who went to Syria in 2014 at the age of 20 to marry an ISIS jihadi called Mahmoud Abdulatif. She has two young children, but none of the stories about her adventures in the Caliphate are clear about who the father or fathers are. Abdul Latif was killed five weeks after she exchanged vows with him. Some reports say she's had two more husbands since then. On a website encouraging other Australian women to follow in her dainty footsteps in 2015, Duman warned the Australian government not to prevent her sisters from doing as she did and leaving Australia. She wrote, quote, Let the truthful Muslims make hijrah, which is travel to Syria. If you don't, you're only adding fuel to the fire, which means attacks on your soil. She also told the Daily Mail Australia the next time I will ever step into Australia is when we come and make it a part of the Islamic State, Bithnilah, which is the permission of Allah. Oh, and do I miss my family? Well, I think you will miss yours soon. Thank you and have a great day, mate. Some years later, having run out of options and living in a refugee camp, she decided that on second thoughts, the caliphate wasn't all it was cracked up to be, and maybe life among us infidels wasn't so bad after all. Two years after that, in 2019, as she, she and her children were still in a refugee camp in Syria, Peter Dutton, as Home Affairs Minister, revoked her Australian citizenship, using authority granted to him by his own government's recent legislation. That's when she started pleading for Australia to instead rescue her and started to downplay the significance of her earlier life-changing decisions. She said, quote, 
Two weeks before I came here, I was clubbing. I wasn't religious. This guy I used to like from high school, he was good looking and stuff. He said, look, I'm in Syria and it's not what you think. Come and get married to me and I can give you a nice life. Didn't quite work out that way. So anyway, she wound up applying to have her citizenship reinstated. Naturally, the government fought it in the courts. But late last year, the new federal government withdrew its opposition to the Dumans case because the laws Dutton used had been deemed unconstitutional by the High Court. Last week, that decision was formalised and Duman can now return legally to the country. She recently threatened to attack. The High Court has form here. You will recall the case of Daniel Love in 2020. Love is not an Australian citizen and was being deported by the government for having committed violent crimes. But the High Court stepped in and said he couldn't be deported because he identified as Aboriginal and therefore had a deep kinship with the land. Is the Duman case another example of the High Court bench leaning to the left and upholding principles that the man in the street would find, to put it politely, confusing? In a minute, I'll have legal expert Chris Merritt from the Rule of Law Institute to discuss it all. Merritt will also discuss the implications of the latest revelations about ACT Director of Public Prosecutions Shane Drumgold, who resigned on the weekend after The Australian got its hands on the report into how he conducted Bruce Lerman's rape trial in Canberra last year. Lerman was accused of raping colleague Brittany Higgins in their Parliament House office late one night in 2019. The trial was aborted because of juror misconduct and Lerman has always maintained his innocence. The case has led to one defamation lawsuit with more possibly to come. But the key focus now is how Drumgold came to mishandle the case so thoroughly. But first, let's talk about immigration, a subject very close to the Zira Duman story. It would be facetious to say that the High Court was lowering the bar of entry to Australia to the point where almost anybody, even someone like Duman, can get in if they try. Because this latest decision is more about legal technicalities than value judgments. But it is not facetious to say that successive governments have made an absolute dog's breakfast out of immigration and all Australians are feeling the consequences of it. The worst thing is that the only control the government seems to have is in increasing our migrant intake. Lowering it seems to be something that governments of either stripe is incapable of doing. Let's bring in Dan Tian, the shadow smokes spokesman for immigration, to talk about it. Dan Tian, welcome to ADH TV. Pleasure to be with you. I think this is the first time for me, so really looking forward to the chat this afternoon. Oh, great. Well, hopefully not the last either, Dan. Let's go, uh, let's go first into the latest story from today's Australian, which revealed the sensational number of 66,000 
thousand students, and I use that term loosely because most of them are not students at all, I suspect, have jumped on a special COVID visa and are enjoying all the benefits that Australia can bestow while people who were born here are struggling to find housing. Now, Dan, for the, uh, for the viewers who aren't familiar with, uh, with COVID visas, can you explain what a COVID visa is and why so many students are able to take advantage of it? So a special COVID visa was put in place uh, when we in government closed the borders and we obviously needed to make sure that we could fill workforce shortages at that time. So uh, we developed what was called the pandemic visa to enable those who were here to be able to extend their stay here and keep working while the borders were closed. Now, what we've found out is, and this was called rightly, uh, the pandemic visa. And what we've found out is since the pandemic ended, since the borders were opened up, uh, the new Labor government, uh, Anthony Albanese's Labor government, have more than doubled the number of pandemic visas that have been issued. So more visas have now been issued since the pandemic ended than were issued when it was actually going on. And our view is this is just another part of the Albanese Labor government's big Australia policy. And what it's doing is putting huge pressure on housing, huge pressure on rent, huge pressure on our health system, huge pressure on congestion and huge pressure on the environment. And once again, we're seeing Labor make a mess of immigration because they've got no plan and no idea as to what they're doing. These COVID visas are absolutely astonishing because they also, if you were already here, as you say, when the borders were shut and now they're extending, you know, that, that's why they were introduced. Now they're granting more, but they're granting them to relatives as well. Dan, it sounds like just one huge rort. Well, it's Labor's Big Australia approach and they've said that they aren't pursuing a big Australia, but everything points to the fact that they are. We know that net overseas migration will increase by 1.5 million over five years. And Jim Chalmers has said that the problem with uh, the, you know housing shortages at the moment uh, are being caused because not enough Australians are leaving and too many are coming. Now, how he can say that is just beyond me. The reason we've got a housing crisis is because Labor's got no plan. They've, they're allowing a big Australia to develop. We know that that's what they're trying to do. And in the meantime, you know, there's forecasts now of, of housing prices in Sydney and Melbourne increasing by another 10 to 15 per cent in the coming years. And that's just making it more and more unaffordable for young Australians in particular, to be able to afford their first home. Well, it's not just people buying homes. I mean, the, the condition of houses, in, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, for rent is going, is going down really quickly. And that's causing enormous pressure on people who will probably never, the way things are going, be able to afford their own home anyway. I mean, the amount of despair this is causing ordinary Australians is ridiculous and seemingly pointless. I mean, Dan, do you have any idea why the government is doing this? I mean, you could say that the sort of people they're bringing in are probably natural Labor voters, but why do they want to just put all this pressure on our urban infrastructure, on housing and on ordinary Australians? It doesn't make sense. 
It, it doesn't make sense, and it's a, a very good question that needs to put to Minister Andrew Giles, to Minister Claire O'Neill, and most particularly to the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Why are they doing this? Because it doesn't make sense. And when it comes to the pandemic visa, these are the figures up until March. So we don't know how many have also been issued uh, in April, in May and in June, uh, which will have just extended that number. And we can't understand why they've used that visa other than the fact that it is just sloppy and easy and doesn't require them working out where the skill shortages are in this nation and trying to specifically address them. What they're doing is just saying, all right, we'll just let as many people in as we possibly can. And the problem with that is you actually exacerbate the skills problems and all these other issues, your housing issues, your rental issues, your health issues, your congestion issues, your environmental issues, which come with it. So no one wins. Yeah, well, speaking of the skill, you know, importing skills, I think the nation's got enough uh, Uber drivers and 7-Eleven shop assistants just quietly. But the, the, the impression that the man on the street gets, Dan, is that nobody's actually in control here, that it's the bureaucrats who are deciding how many people come into this country and for what reason. Am I right? No, I, I wouldn't agree with you on that point because ultimately in the end, uh, the government sets the agenda. And, you know, six months into the Albanese Labor government's first term, I spoke at the National Press Club. I actually warned of this, that Labor had no plan and therefore it was ripe for exploitation. And that's exactly what we've seen happen, this big Australia, this big Australia by stealth approach that the, the government is now pursuing. And, you know... The government could have said, OK, we're not in the pandemic anymore. We are going to stop and, and basically not issue any more pandemic visas. But instead, what have they done? They've actually issued more pandemic visas um, than they were issued when the borders were closed and we're in the pandemic. So the, the buck stops with Anthony Albanese and his Labor government. Uh, they are deliberately pursuing this policy. They're, they're allowing the pandemic visa to be used in this way. We've seen, and this figure will astound you, there has been a 290% increase in visas issued under this government. Um, so that's it. this is a deliberate um, policy by the government. So I think in the end, the buck stopped with them. Well, let's talk about another kind of visa. It's the education visa. I mean, this is a this is a gateway into Australia as well. A lot of foreign students, you know, save up enough to enrol in some cheap course at TAFE or one of these fake private colleges and then spend the next three or eight years clogging up the system, applying for permanent residency. Isn't that a bit of a loophole, Dan? Well, once once again, the, the government seems quite happy to, to see this happen. They've got a report, uh, the Nixon report, which looks at some measures that we could could be put in place to stop this happening, and yet they're sitting on that report, and I think Claire O'Neill's now had it in the, the drawer of her desk for three to four months, uh, and that could deal with that issue. It could deal with the issue of people coming by plane and then seeking asylum, failing in their um, 
in their approach to actually seek asylum, but still, you know, there's 102,000 of these people now waiting for the government to do something uh, about saying to them, well, sorry, you can't longer, you can no longer be here and, you know, we, we need, to, we're going to deport you unless you go voluntarily. Um, all sorry, Dan, I just, Dan just, I, just want to, I just want to interrupt you there. Yeah. You said 102,000 people. Those people are asylum seekers, aren't they? They are. Well, they're not asylum seekers. They sought asylum and then failed. So they came on legitimate visas by plane. Then once they got here, sought asylum, they then were told, no, you have no grounds to seek asylum. And now they've just, they just stay here. And, you know, the government isn't do any, doing anything to say to these people, well, if you don't leave, then um, we'll, we'll remove you. So you've got the issue with um, students uh, exploiting the system for the for the wrong reason to come here and basically uh, to try and work and, and then stay. You've also then got the issue with these failed uh, asylum seekers. And once again, they're just here because the government won't act. Uh, and they've got a report which gives them recommendations of the sorts of things that they should be doing, and they're not doing them. Where are these failed asylum seekers from? I mean, I'd have to say that they can't be the most trustworthy type of people. They've flown into the country, sought asylum. I mean, they can't be in that much danger if they were able to just get on a plane from wherever they came from, and then they've disappeared. I mean, I'd, I'd uh, you know, I'm no immigration expert, Dan, but they sound like pretty untrustworthy people to me, and now we don't even know where they are. Well, we, we want everyone, uh, when they come to Australia, to, to abide by, by the law and uh, abide by the requirements of their, of their visa. And if you come here legitimately on a legitimate visa and then you apply for asylum and then you fail in that, well, then you should meet your um, visa requirements. Now, once your visa's finished, you, you should leave the country. And the government should be ensuring that, th that that's the case. And they've got a report which shows that this issue can be addressed. As a matter of fact, uh, it was addressed in Canada. And, um, but the government is just sitting on that report. Uh, it won't release the report. And meanwhile, um, what we're seeing is every month, um, people are coming here by plane, um, and then we're seeing people, seeing those people um, try and seek a, asylum, failing in that in that effort, and then are remaining here. So the well, government does need to act. Well, they're just rotters, Dan. Well, I mean, the, compare that to what we saw last week. Uh, you probably saw it. Sensational footage out of South Africa. Economic freedom fighters leader Julius Malema and a stadium full of people in South Africa chanting, kill the Boer, by which they mean kill white people. Do you think we should take in some of the South Af white South African farmers, Dan? Well, look, I, I didn't see that, uh, that footage, so I, I really can't, uh, can't comment on it. But what, and, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that, uh, that I do have a look at that, but I didn't see it last week. We had a parliamentary uh, sitting week and... Uh, I was fair enough, fair enough. What, yep. what, was, what was happening here. But one of the things that we always have to do with our migration system and the way that you do it effectively is non-discriminatory and you've got to make sure that in most instances what you're looking to do is bring young skilled people in to fill those skill shortages because that's the best way you add to the capability of your nation. Um, you know, from our point of view, from a coalition's point of view, 
we want a better Australia, not Labor's big Australia. And, you know, that's what we're busy looking at. What are the policies we need to be putting in place? Well, to make a better, sure a better Australia is, is a, it's a good objective. One quick question before we go. Uh, the overall sort of uh, concern a lot of ordinary Australians have about our uh, immigration policy is how much diversity we can handle, how much we can uh, tolerate, for want of a better word, perhaps. Dan, is diversity our strength or not? Well, we, we've always um, based ourselves on having a non-discriminatory immigration policy, and I think that's something that we need to continue to pursue as a nation. But the important thing we need to be looking at is, as I mentioned before, is that skills mix, making sure that we've got young, skilled people uh, filling up the majority of the people who come to Australia, because that way it adds to, to our nation, and that's what we want. We, we want that better Australia, not Labor's big Australia. And when, you know, we get back into government, that is what we will be pursuing. Not this approach that Labor has, that it just seems to be all about numbers, getting as many people in as they possibly can and creating this big Australia. For what purpose? Um, I think a lot of people are, are asking and shaking their heads because there doesn't seem to be one other than let's just pursue Labor's big Australia approach. That's a, that's a good point. It's better to bring in the skills that we need than to bring in students who wind up as Uber drivers. Dan Tian, Shadow Minister for Immigration, thank you. Been a pleasure. That's Dan Tian, the Shadow Minister for Immigration from Canberra. Well, let's change the pace a bit here and talk about victimhood status. As you know, the left has made victimhood status the most desirable thing in the world right now. And they have coincidentally commandeered it all for themselves. If you're gay, dark-skinned or female, there are entire academic faculties and government departments dedicated to helping you realise how downtrodden you are by the racist heterosexual patriarchy. But people who subscribe to this rubbish are actually the lucky ones. Virtually all of the media, academia and government support their struggle to raise themselves out of this swamp of bigotry and succeed in life against overwhelming odds. But that's nothing compared to what people like you and I have to go through. We have to get out of bed every day knowing that we will be bombarded by the hallucinatory illusions of the victimhood industrial complex, telling us audacious falsehoods that a blind man could see are untrue. Australia was brutally invaded rather than peacefully settled? Wrong. White Australians committed genocide on their Aboriginal brothers and sisters? Wrong again. Aboriginal people need a separate voice to Parliament because they have different needs to other human beings. Wrong. Women are paid less than men. Wrong. Women can have a penis. Wrong. Masculinity is toxic. Wrong. Carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere is altering the weather. Wrong, the planet is boiling, the polar ice caps are melting, the oceans are rising, all wrong. Diversity is strength. Wrong, it's actually a weakness and probably a fatal one. COVID is a lethal virus that requires entire populations to stay indoors. 
Wrong. mRNA vaccines are not, in, not only better than natural immunity, they are also safe and effective. Nah, wrong. And the best one of all, no matter which of these erroneous assertions you dare to question, if you do, you are, of course, racist. It all makes so much sense to leftists. I could go on, but you get my point. Having to put up with this rubbish makes us the real victims here. But we don't claim it because we are too busy paying off our homes, raising our kids, and generally just happily getting on with life. But that does not mean we shouldn't be aware of the fundamental changes that are happening all around us. Tucker Carlson explained this very well in a speech to the Heritage Foundation in the United States in April. And like every man is kind of trained from birth to fantasize about what he would do when the building catches fire and you hear a baby crying and so you run inside. No one is trained to stand up in the middle of a DEI meeting at Citibank and say, this is nonsense. And the people who do that, oh, they have my deepest admiration. And so their example really gives me hope. It thrills me. I talk to them all day long, people like that. That's the first thing. We should, in this sad moment of profound and widespread destruction of the institutions that people who share our views built, by the way, earlier generations that would agree substantially with every person in this room, they built those and now they're being destroyed. And oh, that's so depressing. But we can also see rising in the distance New things, new institutions led by new people who are every bit as brave as the people who came before us. Amen. Here's the second thing I'd like to say before I get to the conversation with Dr. Roberts, which is that it, it might be time to start to reassess the terms we use to, <laughs> to describe what we're watching. So when I started at Heritage, the presumption was, and this is a very Anglo-American assumption, that the debates we're having are kind of rational debates about the way to get to mutually agreed upon outcomes. Right? So like, we all want the country to be more prosperous and free and people to be less oppressed or whatever. And so we're going to argue about tax rates. And I think higher tax gets, gets us there. I'm a Keynesian and you disagree or an Austrian or whatever. But the objective is the same. And so we write our papers and they write their papers and may the best papers win. I, I, I don't think that's what we're watching now at all. I don't think we're watching a debate over how to get to the best outcome. And let's have a debate about our ideas. They don't want a debate. Those ideas won't produce outcomes that any rational person would want under any circumstances. Those are manifestations of some larger force acting upon us. Those larger forces are not mysterious and they might yet infer genuine victim status on people like you and I very soon. The banking system is gearing up to change the way we do business in ways that enable the finance, finance industry and the government, but I repeat myself, to exercise complete control over us. Two weeks ago, the Reserve Bank of Australia quietly released details of a trial run it had conducted of a central bank digital currency. This is a currency that is entirely programmable. You can use it to conduct transactions as you do with your credit card now. But if the person controlling the currency, that is the government, decides you shouldn't be allowed to spend it on, say, overseas flights, 
meat or beer, or worse, if it decided you are no longer, longer worthy to have any money at all, then it has the power to act accordingly. The finance industry is in on this. NatWest, NatWest subsidiary bank Coots tried to cancel Nigel Farage's accounts in the UK because of his unacceptable political views. When he went public about it, hundreds of similar victims contacted him with similar stories. Australian banks are pulling back from dealing with cash, which is your free way to escape from the controls of the banks and the government. The banks are also imposing limits on exchanges with cryptocurrencies, which are the main competitor to a central bank digital currency. And recently, Treasurer Jim Chalmers endorsed a policy allowing Australian banks to cancel anyone's accounts provided the bank made adequate records of why it did so. If you don't think the government, the finance industry and Treasurer Jim Chalmers are all preparing to increase control over your everyday transactions, well, you're just not paying attention. The power the government is surreptitiously acquiring will make the COVID lockdowns look like a picnic. A petition has been lodged with Parliament House to protect your basic human right to a bank account and for your right to pay for goods and services with cash if you wish to. Without these rights intact, it will be ridiculously easy for a tyrannical government to destroy your life, and don't think they won't do it. Search Petition EN5329. That's Petition EN5329, and then click on the APH website to sign the petition. You have 25 days to let the government, you will not stand for it. Okay, now let's cross to Chris Merritt of the Rule of Law Institute to discuss the case of Zira Duman, who has managed to be allowed to return to Australia despite threatening to attack the place, and the increasingly complex and disturbing case of Shane Drumgold, the disgraced and now former ACT Director of Public Prosecutions. Chris, welcome. Thank you. There's plenty to talk about, Chris. Now, let's start with this High Court decision to allow Zira Duman, the ISIS bride who threatened to kill Australians, back into the country. This is the sort of decision, Chris, that makes ordinary Australians just shake their head in disbelief. But you say the High Court didn't have any choice but to grant her application to have her citizenship reinstated. Why is that? That's right. Uh, look, this is, uh, I'd be the first to jump all over the High Court for uh, uh, getting outside its, uh, its, its training wheels, tra out, of its, out of course, but this is not a case like that. This is a case where the High Court is actually doing what it should do and is holding to account governments, Parliament, when Parliament exceeds its jurisdiction. Uh, what happened in this case? This is a, an echo of something that happened under the last government when the last government 
said, okay, well, uh, we're going to enact a law that uh, will allow us, the government, to declare when people have forfeited their citizenship by doing things we don't like, such as going and, and uh, 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 playing footsie with terrorists in the Middle East. That uh, sounds reasonable. It sounds reasonable when you think about But when you think about it, what's the difference between uh, allowing a government to impose that sort of penalty and allowing a government to lock people up without a trial? And that's the principle that the High Court seized upon. This is an echo of a decision about a year ago um, when they decided that it's perfectly OK for Parliament to enact a law making it possible to effectively... Uh, shun people, take away their citizenship, but it needs to be put into place by the High Court. The High Court needs to determine the facts and decide whether those facts comply with the set of facts outlined in the legislation. That's the reverse of what the previous government did, where they said these are the facts outlined in the legislation and we will determine that those facts have been met. Now, that, that can't happen. That, that's just a breach so, of the yeah, so what you're Yeah, exactly. So, but what you're saying is that um, for someone to have their citizenship revoked, they need to have pro been proven to commit some serious crime. Is that right? You can't just arbitrarily mm -hmm. say, well, that person's bad. We better not let them back in. That's not how it works. Yes, look, the... the what we've got now is a, is a gap, a gap in the law. The, the previous government's uh, legislation that was targeted at these sort of people, pe people who go to the Middle East and, and um, uh, support terrorists, terrorist states, there needs to be some sort of uh, consequence. It's just that the previous government didn't get it right. They didn't um, draft their legislation in a way that would pass, pass muster. So as a result, there is no law. The, the current government has given an undertaking that they will eventually get around to filling this gap. And the sooner they do it, the better, because this is not the last instance where people who have uh, uh, gone and uh, supported ISIS and done all sorts of things that uh, most people would consider to be repugnant, there's a few of them and, and they will continue to crop up. Now, the, the the current government is still not has still not acted on this, and I think the onus uh, now falls on them. The previous government tried; their law failed. The current government needs to have another go, and the sooner the better, I would say. Well, two things spring to mind, Chris. First is, you know, you're right. A government can't arbitrarily lock people up, but arbitrarily lock people up. But uh, that's exactly what happened during COVID. I would I would argue. Yeah. But the other thing is, Chris, you're saying, uh, you know, according to very, very ancient and uh, fundamental principles, that it should be the courts that decide whether or not someone has committed a particularly heinous crime. But I'd argue that a minister should be able to make that call because the minister is the elected one. I mean, if he or she gets it wrong, she can be turfed out or he or she can be turfed out at the next election, whereas, uh, you know, we don't, we don't vote for judges, do we? That's true, that's true, but the judicial process is, is what we're defending here. The, 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 the role of Parliament is to make a law and say, you do this and you will incur a penalty. The role of Parliament stops at imposing that penalty. It's not up to Parliament to determine whether a given set of facts 
meets the requirements of the law. That's the judicial function. It, it, it might sound efficient to vest that, that function uh, with the executive, with, with the, the, uh, the government, a minister or a senior public servant. It would be very efficient. But um, uh, liberal democracy is not the most efficient form of government. It's the, it's the one that we've got, and I would argue that a little bit of inefficiency is a good thing. It's still the best system that we know anyway. I mean, well said, Chris, uh, and the separation of powers should remain as separate as, as can be. Now, let's talk about Shane Drumgold, who resigned as Director of Public Prosecutions in the ACT on the weekend. This story just keeps... It's the gift that keeps on giving, if I can be so cynical. It, Drumgold had been on leave since May anyway. Um, the whole thing, the whole resignation was triggered by the Australian getting its hands on a report from Walter Sofronoff into the way Drumgold handled the rape trial of Bruce Lerman. Now, as the viewers probably know, that's pro that would be one of the most sensational criminal trials in Australia probably since Lindy Chamberlain back in the 1980s. And the trial didn't even reach its conclusion because it, uh, it was uh, abandoned because of juror misconduct. Now, there have been some developments in all this this afternoon. Chris, what happened? Oh, it's extraordinary. Um, uh, not only is the, uh, the ACT government uh, now uh, considering the process of uh, deciding uh, whether Mr Drumgold should face uh, legal action, uh, but they're also considering the process of deciding whether Mr Sofronoff um, should face legal action. I kid you not. Um, they're, they're dead serious about this. They've, they've indicated that they might refer him to the, uh, the Territories Integrity Commission. That's their, their ICAC, their Anti-Corruption Commission. They're furious, in fact. Um, they're furious that he leaked this report to the Australian and to the ABC. And you might think, well, that's a little bit of an overreaction, but you need to see it in context. It goes back to last week when uh, uh, Mr Barr, the Chief Minister of the ACT, uh, issued a statement making it pretty clear that he was considering redacting parts of the report before he made it public. His statement was that uh, before August is out, uh, he would make public in whole or in part and considering, after taking into account the legal implications, the, the Sofranoff report, he had a copy of it. Now, what's happened? Uh, after that statement, Mr Sofranoff leaked or made available on an embargoed basis uh, the report to the Australian and to the ABC. Uh, now, the Australian argues, uh, has reported in print, that it did not break any embargo when it burst into print with massive details about what's in this report. Now, there's no further explanation coming from that newspaper, but the implication, and that's all it can be, is that the Australian managed to obtain a copy of the report, the Sofronoff report, from other sources, not from uh, or as well as from Mr Sofronoff. So if it, if, if it had it from two different sources and one of them was not covered by an embargo, and that's what seems to be the case, they were quite free to go ahead and report it. Now, the implication of that is that it means or it meant 
that the ACT government had lost any possibility of redacting the most sensitive parts of, the, of that report. These are the parts that had legal implications. And you think, well, what would that be? Well, the legal implications are the most serious criticism of uh, Mr Drumgold. So that's, that's why I suspect they're not that happy with, with Mr Sofronov. So you're but saying... You're, see... you're, you're, sorry to interrupt. You're saying that the ACT government was trying to minim, minimise the... Uh, the the effect this had on Drumgold? Is that, that their motivation? I read it that way, but just to go over it, they flagged their intention to redact it. The most sensitive bits with legal implications would have concerned Mr Drumgold. Mr Sofronoff's decision to lick the entire thing and have it, it was then reported in great detail in The Australian, precluded the... Uh, any possibility that the ACT government could reduce or, or prevent the public knowing the most sensitive bits of this report. They couldn't do it anymore. The report that was released today has no redactions other than those that were made by Mr Sofronoff. Now, there's one other point that might be relevant here. The Attorney-General of the ACT, Mr Rattenbury, Shane Rattenbury, actually said that he concluded that Mr Drumgold's conduct met the standard for dismissal under the DPP Act. And then he was asked, quite naturally, well, why didn't you dismiss him? And he didn't have, to my mind, he didn't have a, a clear answer. He obfuscated a little bit. Uh, the reality is Mr Drumgold is still in office and won't leave office until September 1. He then leaves with his entitlements not a payout, not, a, not an additional payout, just his entitlements. Now, simultaneously, the government, which has concluded that he could have been dismissed, is examining how it can go about considering whether there should be criminal proceedings uh, instituted against Mr Drumgold. So this is a, a fairly extraordinary set of circumstances. And, and on top of that, Chris... It's, it's said this afternoon, correct me if I'm wrong, that they will also consider charges against Walter Sofronov for allegedly uh, um, releasing or leaking the report. Now, I mean, I might be a bit cynical, Chris, but that's, that sounds awfully like what's happening in Washington at the moment. I mean, Joe Biden is distracting the media from his own enormous accusations of, uh, of serious corruption by, um, by you know, charging uh, um, Donald Trump with seemingly trivial affairs and, and filling newspapers um, in, with, with stories about Trump instead of stories about him. Is that the same thing that's going on here, do you think? Look, you don't need to be a cynic to view this as a deflection. Uh, what has happened is uh, to the criminal justice system in the ACT is probably the greatest failure this country has ever seen of a criminal justice system. It had one job, and that was to provide a fair trial for a very serious accusation. That was the, the talk of the nation. It could not do that. It, it, uh, the first trial misfired because of a... Uh, a juror's misconduct, and then the second, uh, any possibility of a second trial was precluded by, by Mr Drumgold himself when he, he, he was expressed concern about Brittany Higgins' mental health. But simultaneously, while making that statement, 
Um, he also said, oh, well, look, I'm confident I could have secured a conviction against Mr Lerman. So there goes the presumption of innocence in that case. So if you, if you look at the role of a criminal justice system, the, what they've got in the ACT is in deep, deep trouble. The, the government of that territory has even decided not to go back and have a look at the, the earlier uh, uh, sexual assault proceedings involving uh, Mr Drumgold. Uh, they, they mentioned at their press conference this afternoon that there were 18 such cases after his appointment as DPP and uh, most of them were uh, appellate matters where the, the role of the DPP would, would not be that significant and three were uh, uh, not contentious. But that says nothing about what happened in the previous 17 years in which Mr Drumgold was a, uh, a lawyer at the DPP in the ACT. Now, if he brought the same approach to bear in the previous 17 years that he did in the, the Lerman case, I, I think the people of the ACT should have a great deal of concern about the, the quality of their justice system. Well, we talked about the separation of powers in relation to uh, Zira Duman. I mean, in this case, there, the, there is... That the separation of powers is very ambiguous and opaque, isn't it? Because uh, Shane Drumgold is quite mm. close to the ACT government, isn't he? Very close. His submission to, to Sofronoff actually makes the point that he is a member of the executive committee, or he was until he resigned, member of the executive committee of the government. Now, that's uh, members of the executive branch, senior public servants, uh, now, Heidi Yates, the Victims of Crime Commissioner, is another member of, of that committee. Now, that, uh, that raises questions, uh, and that's about all you can say at this point, but it raises questions about whether it is desirable for the independent prosecutor to be so close to another branch of government. This is the, the, the legislature, the, the, the government that runs things. The, the, the whole purpose of having an independent prosecutor is to separate them from the legislature on the one hand and the police on the other so that you get a, a, a degree of tension between all those three entities, those, those three organisations. And I'm a little concerned that uh, with the structure that the ACT has got in place where uh, the, such a powerful figure as the DPP, regardless of the, the personalities, is part of the executive committee of the government. Uh, I doubt whether that would um, uh, that I doubt whether that's healthy, and I think it would be a lot better uh, if the true independence of the of the prosecutor was strengthened by putting a bit more distance between the prosecution in in future and the government. Well, you'd think that would be strengthened after this report, but by all accounts, it looks like they're doubling down. Chris, I think the out, the takeout from all of this is whatever you do, don't get, don't get charged with a serious crime in the ACT. Chris, I've, we've run out of time, but thanks for your time. Always a pleasure. Quite okay. That's Chris Merritt from the Rule of Law Association. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation. 
from people like Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, who now has two shows a week on ADH, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pillow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.